0: In this episode of The God of Freedom Show, we sort of shift gears on how, how the show is usually operated, and we discuss a very important topic that I think is very good for all Christians to hear, and that is the doctrine of internal security of salvation. So I discuss why salvation was necessary in the first place, and discuss the scriptural support for internal security. My name is Sean Clinton, and this is God of Freedom Show. The show is sponsored by Anchor. It's the e- easiest way to make a podcast. So if you always want to start a podcast but didn't know where to begin, Anchor is for you. Anchor is very simple to use, and it is also free. All you do is simply record the audio from your phone, the computer, laptop, or wherever, edit it, and then post it. You can monetize it with sponsorship, sponsorships or donation buttons, and you can distribute to sites like, a, like up a podcast, Spotify, or web listen to podcasts. Check it out at anchor.fm, or download the app It's Anchor.fm, or download the app. Alrighty, so we are back. I hope everyone has had themselves a great week. So like I said, we're going to be kind of shifting gears on how we usually operate this um, the show. Because usually I start with politics, and then get into kind of, a, kind of a church culture thing, and then get into more of a theological topic. But this time around, we're going to actually just focus the entire episode on a theological topic. And again, that is the doctrine of of eternal security so we have a lot to cover in this topic because it's very vast it's not just really the eternal security part but more but also get a bit is just really explaining why salvation was necessary in the first place so again we have a lot to cover so let's go ahead and jump right into it so as we dive in into this episode, um, the first question that should that really will come to mind is, you know, what is eternal security? What does that um, term mean? How does it, you know, relate to Christians and all that? So first off, the word uh, "eternal" obviously means like forever. It's often used for um with Christianity when referring to the afterlife to heaven. Or even hell. Either if you're a Christian, of course, if you believe in Jesus, you will spend an eternity in heaven in the presence of God's glory. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you spend an eternity in hell. An eternal, eternal punishment. So again, eternal means... Um, forever. So security obviously means like like protection against like any kind of like threat. Like for example, like you have security in your, out your house. You do you install security locks in order to protect it from robbers or anyone who wants to come in and do you harm. So security means basically protection. So when you combine when you have the phrase eternal security, so what this means in terms for Christianity. It refers to salvation, and so, again, eternal security means it's the idea that you can't lose your salvation in Jesus Christ, especially once you're truly you're truly saved, you're um, sealed by the Holy Spirit for all eternity, and no matter like, really, no matter what you do, how bad you sin or whatever, you can't lose. His, uh, his salvation for you. And so, the reason why I'm kind of, I talk why I'm spending an entire episode on this topic right here is, is due to two posts I read over the week, because I originally wasn't going to do this. But when I read these two posts, and more, more or less the comments in these posts, it really just kind of stirred up something in me. And I guess the Holy Spirit was moving through me and guided me to to really do this episode because I think it's a, it seems to be a very for some reason a very controversial topic that gets people's nerves up for some reason and just people are just very confused about it and so the first post I I saw over the week was it was something by John MacArthur and I guess it came from a blog post and Grace to you and, but John MacArthur's uh, Facebook page um, posted it. And so here's what the post says right here. The idea that a Christian can backslide and lose his salvation also impugns impu- impu- Christ's promise to, interna- to eternally preserve the people he saves. And so that's the first post basically saying that pretty much if you can lose, somehow lose your salvation... That means that Christ, the work of Christ was completely worthless. I mean, sort of. It didn't achieve what he set out to do, which was to save sinners for eternity. Not for a short time, not, not temporary, for eternity. Eternity is the key word I'm going to be using throughout this episode. And so again, I agree with the statement but as moral, but more so the comments in this post. Um, but real quick, um, the second post I wrote over the weekend or over over the week, this was actually a post that came out back in September of 2021, and it's from this uh, lady named Ali Yared, who's a very solid uh, theological social media social media person. You know, she posts a lot of. Again, theological posts to help edify Christians and to teach Christians and all of it. And She's very solid. She's very theologically sound and biblical and all that. So I definitely recommend checking her out. She, you can find her on Instagram, on Twitter, and all that. But back in September, she posted this tweet right here. The idea of losing salvation stems from a misunderstanding of salvation itself. <laughs> Offer correction to anyone who is willing to hear. But do not put up with false teachings. You do not earn your salvation, and you do not keep your salvation. God grants salvation, and he keeps his people. Again, I absolutely agree with these two statements. But the comments on these posts are what really bother me. In a lot of ways, that really just kind of caught my attention, just really stirred up something in me. Was just everybody, there's a bunch of people who just absolutely don't like don't like this doctrine they they just deny it and they seem to downright hate it there's an element of hatred for the doctrine of eternal security I just don't understand it, it's and there's a good people, especially on John MacArthur's post, so many people saying <laughs> it just all that just completely denying this doctrine, like somehow the doctrine of eternal security is heresy to some pro- professing Christians. I don't understand it. It it just makes no sense whatsoever. But to really kind of understand. Why, why people would despise this doctrine, and to really to understand the doctrine itself, and all that, we really had to. We need to understand salvation, and why it was necessary in the first place, and so this is where it's gonna. So. So again, uh, we we need to understand why salvation was necessary in the first place, and what exactly is salvation. And so, to start off with, we're going to be going all the way to the beginning. Now keep in mind, there's going to be a lot of scriptural reads in this episode, so buckle up, because there's there's a lot to it. So again, first off, we're going to be starting from Genesis 1, from the very beginning. And we're going to be reading all the first chapter and also kind of the first four verses of chapter two get to to it all right so again uh, you can follow me along I definitely recommend you follow me along and I'll definitely try to post the verses on the screen I, I know I usually don't do that but I definitely try because it, it just there's a lot of scriptural references and just reading in this episode, so it's definitely I'm gonna do that help uh help people it'll be easier to keep up with. So again we'll be starting from Genesis one and I'll be I'm reading from the uh New America New American Standard Bible for anyone who wants to read that translation to help to follow me along better. Anyways, so Genesis 1, starting from verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and then, and there was morning, one day. And then God said, "Let there be expanse and expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the expanse." Sorry, let, it, let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters that which were below above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. And then God said, let the waters be below, below the heavens be gathered into into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and gathering the gathering the waters seed he called seeds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation Plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth veg- vegetation, plants yielding seed after, after their kind. And trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Then God said... Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens and to give light on earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens, to give light on, on the earth, and to govern the day and the night, and, and to separate the light from the dark, and f- f- the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, "Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above, above the earth, and open the spans of the heavens." God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind and salt, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be, pr- pr- be fruitful and multiply. Build the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth uh, after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed him and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The God said let behold I give you every every plant and yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth every tree which has fruit yielding seed it shall be food for you and to every beast of the and every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on on the earth which has life I given every g- green plant for food and it was so God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now we're on chapter 2. Again, we're only going to the first four verses of it. Thus, the heavens and the earth were, were completed. Hold on, one second. All right, again, we're in chapter 2. Right here, we're again, we're only going to, through the first four verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and, and sanctified it, because in, in it he rested from all his work which God had which God had created and made. This, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day of the Lord. That in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Alrighty, so that that right there from Genesis 1 all the way to Genesis 2, verse 4. is the account of the creation of all, of everything, of the universe, of the animals, the birds. just everything, us, the heaven, angels, all of it. It's so fascinating to read, go back through it. The creation, just how just... This magnificent God's glory and his power is. Right here. And there's one... Cool thing that I just kind of... Come to discover... Not really discover... But just have observed... Going through Genesis... Going, going through the... New... Old Testament... Overall... That just... is how much of it... Just pretty much everything... In the Old Testament, and of course the New Testament, obviously, it all points to Christ. It's so fascinating. So even from the very beginning of 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 Scripture. So again, let me go back to Genesis one real quick. So we're going to actually go through again the first um, five verses, and I'll explain why just a little bit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. He called night, and it was evening and there was morning one day. So the reason why I ran I read that verse that passage again, because it, it points to Christ as well. Let me explain. So with creation, pretty much everything was created by the Father through Jesus Christ. It was all. All things were created through Jesus Christ, and so when you look at Genesis one right here, and what God said, "Let there be light," and so you know when you're, especially if you're a new Christian, and going from Genesis one, all and all the way through, just starting from the beginning, you would think, you automatically assume that the light he's talking about there is the sun. I know I did. I, I thought, okay. That's when he created the sun and everything. But when you get down to the fourth day, that's when he created the sun and the moon and all the stars. as it, In other words, all the planets, all the galaxies as well. And so when you go through that, you kind of puzzle for a second, like, wait, he created the light or he he called for, or created, or made the light, and in kind of the beginning of the chapter, when you go down a little bit, it said, here's when he created the sun and the moon. I'm confused. And it can be confusing, but, you gotta kind of read it carefully, and everything, because, and also read other passages all throughout scripture to kind of help really explain this. So the light that Jesus, that, that is talked about here in Genesis right here is actually Jesus. Now I'm not saying I am not saying let me be clear, I'm not saying that J- Jesus was created. He was not created, he has always been, because also Jesus is God. That's very that's very obvious. And so but this light right here was Pre-carnic Christ. Because I notice... Because you notice... In the in the language... Of the passages... In the passage... It said God said... Let there be light. Not that he created light... But just let, let there be light. And so... And you notice the spirit of God... That's the Holy Spirit... Was moving... Over the surface of the deep. Right there. And so... With the power of the Holy Spirit The light of Christ Pre-econic Christ Was brought forth Which created The light of the world And it's very key Because if you read If you go on to Especially the New Testament it's, um, Jesus himself says that he is the light of the world So let's go first to John chapter 8 Verse 12 There we go. So again, John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now let's jump to John chapter 9, verse 5. So again, chapter 9, verse 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. If I mean let's go to to the end in Revelation twenty-one, verse twenty-three. So again, um, Revelation twenty-one, verse twenty-three. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated has illuminated it. And its lamp is the lamp. That is, the lamb is Jesus. So Jesus, in the end of all things, when he creates, when the new heaven and the new earth come about, he, as Jesus, will be the light of the world. There will be no need for the sun or the moon, because he will brighten brighten the earth. It's so fascinating. So when you read this passage and the two passages in John... And all that. It was very clear. That this is the light. That Moses was talking about. In Genesis. This is exactly what he's referring to. When God said let there be a light. That is he was bringing forth. Pre, the pre-incarnate Jesus. It's so fascinating. It's so. Because. Um, what kind of brought this idea. kind of Was. I think last week. I was speaking, uh, talking to friends. And so, um, one of them said that, um, that when in Genesis, when God says, "Let there be light," he wasn't talking about the sun; he was talking about bringing forth Christ, bringing forth Jesus, because He was the light of the world. And so it, that boggled my mind. It was, it was so fascinating to think about. And It tells you again how everything in the New Old—I mean, Old Testament points to Christ. So for Christians to say that the Old Testament is unnecessary, and everything no, that's wrong. The Old Testament is absolutely necessary. It is needed. You need to read it. Because it all points back to Christ. The New Testament is good. But it is, the New Testament is incomplete without the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, we would have no idea if Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the messiah that's that's the, that's why the Old Testament is so important to go over and read It's so it's so fascinating it's just so cool to look at especially just he was there he he was in the beginning and it fits right there with um even in like let's go to John chapter one. Real quick. So again, John chapter one. We're gonna go from verses one through five. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 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 with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in him life, and the life of, <laughs> in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That, see, that, that, that just, <laughs> that is so <laughs> darn fascinating. That's just so cool right there. It's so cool kind of seeing the parallel between the beginning of John and, and also the beginning of Genesis. So obviously when John was writing this gospel, he was going over Genesis. He was going back to Genesis and just kind of going through it is just to get the parallels. And so, it's again, it's so fascinating. So, again, one more verse I'm going to go to real quick. That is Colossians 1 verse 16. Again, so Colossians 1, verse 16. For for by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So again, all things were created through Christ and for his glory, for the glory of God. And so that's why when you go back to Genesis 1, it makes sense. Because right after he said let there be light, and that's when everything else came into being. That's when everything, God created everything else. It's so so fascinating. It's so cool. So again, this is the account ...of the creation of the world and how it was created. And one key thing that God said is that it was very good. Man was very... Man was good. We, were, we were, Man was righteous. Everything was good. There was not any evil, no suffering, no sickness. Nothing. It was perfect. Until... Sin came along. So before I continue on with this... Got to first you go over to YouTube or the God of Freedom ball to check it out. So, not only get the rest of this episode regarding not only just kind of the salvation, how what that was necessary, but also whether or not scripture supports eternal um, security and everything, and also the good stuff of the ambassador of the week. And remember, you can find the show on on, a, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever we listen to podcasts. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. This is the God of Freedom show. All right, let's so let's continue on right here. So again, like I like I said before, so when God created everything, when he was done creating everything, he rested and he called it all good. Everything was good and righteous and just, just perfect. Including man. There was no sickness, no evil, no any of that until sin entered the narrative. So now let's go to Genesis three. This is the fall this is the fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, in which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, "Indeed, has God said you should not eat from the from any tree of the garden?" See, right there, the serpent, this A.K.A. Satan, was twisting what God said, and he was you know, saying, to "Eve, has God really said?" And that's how, that's how he's still worship today. When we're tempted. To, to 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 commit a sin or to do something that is contrary to what God designed and what He said, and contrary to His commandments, Satan always uses that always uses that line, saying, "Has God really said? Has God really said that pride is bad? Has God really said homosexuality or any type of sexual or morality is bad? Has God really said that mediation or?" Witchcraft is bad... And all that... So that's, that's how he works... And that, that's how it worked from the beginning... And that's how he, he'll work until he's ultimately destroyed... The woman said to the serpent... From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat... But from the fruit of the tree... Which is in the middle of the garden... God said you should not eat from it... Or touch it... Or you will die... The serpent said to the woman... You will surely not die, for God knows that, the day, that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, again, that's another tactic he plays. <laughs> when we're tempted into sin, into doing things apart from God, that's how kind of he frames the argument, saying, we will, be, we will be like God. So he plays on our pride are prior to wanting to control our own destinies and to become like God. Again, he still works the same way today. He is not original. He's not very clever in his in his tactics. But his tactics are very effective, unfortunately. Excuse me. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it, from its fruit, and ate. And she also gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Again, <clears throat> I know keep stopping, but it's very important to kind of point this out. So when Eve saw the fruit, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was very desirable. That's how sin works. It's very, it's a delighted eyes. It's like it's very desirable in the moment because it can bring about you know very temporary fulfillment and happiness. But ultimately, it leads to death, as you will see right here going on. Then the eyes above them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves with loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The God, said, the God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He, heard, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I, so I hid myself. And he, and he said... Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I command you not to eat? Then God, the, the man said, the woman whom you gave me gave to be with me. She gave me from the from the from the tree, and I ate. So two important points I want to kind of make right here is that when when God said, God says right here, you know. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree and all that? It's not that he's actually surprised. Like, wait a minute. I did not see that coming. They eat from the tree. I did not see that coming at all. He saw that coming. He knew, he knew that would happen. Because he foreordained all things to happen. Anyways. So. So this is kind of a. I want to say sarcastic. But it's kind of like how. When parents know the children did something, but they are giving, giving them a chance to confess it? So, let's say, say your child, you know, breaks a plate. You knew, And you knew the kid uh, broke the plate. And you say to them, have you broken the plate? It's not that you're trying to ask to find out the answer. You already know the answer. But you're just trying to get them to confess to what they did. That's exactly what God is doing here to Adam. And then, of course, Adam answers back saying, kind of deflecting responsibility from himself, back to God, actually. He said he blames God, saying, the woman that you gave me, gave me the fruit. Like, he was blaming God for the wrong he did. So, that's how... Unfortunately, a lot of people work, especially men today, they deflect their responsibility for the wrongdoing back to God or back on others and don't take any responsibility for themselves. So again, there's nothing new under the sun, as it says in Ecclesiastes. So again, on verse back to verse 13. Then the Lord God said to, be, to the woman... What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Then Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed it, cursed it are you more than all, all cattle or more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, you shall he shall bruise you on the head, and you you shall bruise him on the heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. And in pain you will bring forth children, and yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree, by which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you you eat of it. All the days of your life of both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you'll eat, eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, and you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it from it you are taken from de- for you are dust and to dust you shall return now the man called his wife wifes name Eve because she was the mother of all of all the living the lord god made garments of of skin for adam and his wife and clothed them then the lord god said behold the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the lord god sent him out of the garden to cultivate the ground which he was taken so he drove out the man out, out of the And and at the east of the garden of the of the of the garden of Eden, he stationed the uh, Trilumbum and the and a flaming sword which turned away turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And so that right there is the count of the fallen man. And even from just from here on Genesis 4, 5, and 6, and on. You see just man completely just fall apart. You get Genesis 4, the first murder. And just so forth in Genesis 5, things get worse. Genesis 6, man, is so evil that God just completely destroys him. But still, of course, keeps Noah alive to keep the human race going. And because, again, sin has centered, has sent because sin entered the narrative, as God said the the ground was cursed. That's why people work very hard to cultivate the ground in order to simply grow food because of sin. The reason why we have sickness, viruses, cancer, and all of that is because sin, sin entered the world. Because we have we have suffering, evil, wars, and all of that is because of sin. Is not because your personal sin, for example, made you sick, if sin in general is what brought, off, brought on the sickness, is what made the sickness sickness in the first place, in which you contracted. And so, this is the state of mankind to this very day. It is very obvious. And so, let's go to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 7, verse 20 so Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 says this indeed there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins now let's go to Romans chapter 3 starting from verse 10 here we go so Romans chapter 3 starting from verse 10 as is written there's none righteous not even one there's none who understands there's no, there's none who seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become useless there's none who does good there's not even one their throat was an open grave where their tongues that keep deceiving. The poison of asses under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of, of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. <laughs> if we go down to verse 23 in chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If I'm gonna, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 1. So again, Ephesians chapter 1, start from, sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, starting from verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in lust of the flesh, indulging desires of the flesh, and of mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So this right here describes the nature of mankind, the depravity of mankind. So it says in Romans, there is none good, there is none who is righteous. There's none who does who does good and in the sight of God. So from our human per- perspective, we see very we, we might look at a person and say, Oh, he's he's a good man, he's a good person, and all that. But according to God, especially if if he's apart from Christ, he's not good. According to God's definition definition of good. Because God made good, he made righteousness, so all that is under his definition of the good is according to what he designed, not according to what we think so again, this is the the nature of man this is where the concept of total depravity and reformed theology comes from. It comes from especially a lot of these passages that just just describing the nature of man and how we and our natural selves. Apart from Christ, we do not seek God. We did not seek either God. Naturally, we hate God. We rebel against him. We, we, we go after our own desires, our own lust, everything. We live in sin, everything. We are children of wrath apart from Christ. But God. Um, that's the, some of the best words in scripture. That right is, but God. So' let's continue in Ephesians right here, starting with verse four and chapter two, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love which he with which He loved us, even though even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ, by grace we have been saved, and raised, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so, God in his mercy made a way through Jesus Christ. And that was all done, not for us, not for our glory. That was all done for his glory, for his purpose to show his his power and his just magnificence and his holiness it was all different done for him and so with jesus he's awesome you know for christ and also the messiah so again like i said earlier the old testament all around points to christ from the very beginning of genesis all scripture points to christ from the very beginning of genesis to the end of revelation it is so fascinating and if you read kind of throughout the old testament you see different prophecies many different prophecies prophecies of of the messiah it's very fascinating so first so we're only going to read just a few of these prophecies because there are are so many all throughout the old testament but first we're going to start with psalm Psalm chapter 2. So again, we're going to be reading Psalm uh, Psalm 2. Why are the nations in uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers of take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, and cast away the, their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs; the Lord scoffs of them. Then he will speak to them in his anger, and terrify them in his fury, saying, but, but as for me I have installed my king upon Zion, my, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the, of the decree of the Lord, he said to me you are my son to get to today i have begotten you ask of me and i will surely give the nations of your inheritance in the very ends of the earth as your possession you shall break them with an iron rod you shall shatter them like earthenware now therefore o kings show discernment take warning o judges of the earth earth worship the lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him So there are there it points that is the anointed king, his king, the Son, that is Jesus. That is who God is talking about. That, That is Jesus. God the Son, God in flesh. This is a pre Christ. And so, what this prophecy is really referring to, if you look at it, is referring to the second coming of Christ when he will establish his kingdom and wipe out all evil, all the evil kingdoms, and establish his, establish his throne. And those who who are not in him, who don't believe in him, and just don't obey him, <laughs> will face his wrath and face his judgment. But those who are to re- take refuge in Him, who believe in Him, and surrender to Him and follow Him, they they will be protected by Him. They will spend an eternity with Him. Again, this is in Psalm two. This is in Psalm two before in the Old, in the Old Testament. This is the time of David. So this is at least when this chapter. I'm pretty sure this is when. The chapters written. I'm pretty sure this is from David. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Psalm two, the first beginning of Psalms, are all from David. So that just tells you, even back to Moses, even back to the beginning, to the fall of man. You see prophecies of Jesus. That just tells you that this was God's plan from the very beginning, before the foundation of the earth. Before the foundation of everything. It's so fascinating. So next let's go to. Um, Isaiah. Uh, seven fourteen. 14. Alright. So again we're in Psalm. Or, no, Isaiah. Chapter 7. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold a virgin will be with child. And bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. Which means. Would be, which means God with us. So this is referring to the prophecy of how um, Jesus will be born. Will be will be born. He will be born through a virgin birth. And it says, and uh, I won't turn to it, but in prophet in the in the book of Jeremiah, it says, "Where could will be born?" And then and, and Jeremiah, prophesizes that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. So now let's go to Isaiah 9. We read in verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So that's describing kind of the nature of who Jesus is. So now let's go... Look forward to, um, here we are, in Isaiah fifty-two, starting from verse thirteen. Behold, my servant will prosper; he will be high and lifted up, and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so its appearance was marred more than any man is form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations; kings will shut their mouths on 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 account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. So, this part is referring to Jesus. And I think this is kind of referring to his second coming when he established his throne. And every again, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And now, Ron to Isaiah 53. Which is kind of one of my favorite prophecies of of the Messiah. It's is really cool. So we can actually re reading the entire chapter. So again, uh, Isaiah fifty three. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of part of ground. He had no stately form or majesty. That he should that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our, our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being was fell upon him, and by scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he, he was afflicted. yet he, he, he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, to slaughter, and like, sh- like a sheep that is silent before it is shears... so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for, as for his generation, he was considered. Who considered that he was cut off, out of the land of the living, for the transgression of the, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was designed to awaken men. He was with a rich man in his death, because he had not he had done no violence, nor was an deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death, to putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt- offering he would he, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. as for the anguish of his of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge of the righteous one. My servant will justify the many, and as he will bear the iniquities, therefore I will allot him a portion of it with the great. And he, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins, the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. So again, this is kind of again one of my favorite prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Um, if you have not, um, kind of looked it up or not um heard or listened to it, I definitely recommend going to, I guess the G Three website or even the G Three app, and look up um this past conference and uh, back in back in October, with John MacArthur's sermon on Isaiah fifty three. Because <laughs> he writes it down, he's just he breaks down excellently. He is very, he exposes the passage, the passage so. Just wonderfully, and it was awesome. It's a very a well done sermon, and like I said, you know, he refers to Isaiah as the very first gospel of Scripture, and it is true that it's, this Isaiah perfectly describes this gospel. You know, he came to save sinners. Everything he was put to death and even to the details of his burial when Nicodemus and the Joseph were the ones who uh put him in I'm pretty sure Joseph, Joseph's tomb. And both Nicodemus and Joseph helped perform the burial ceremony and all that. And then it kind of refers to kind of his resurrection and now he'll be giving given the throne. <laughs> so fascinating, so fascinating to see. And so, that's a, that. just the, just a few other prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. It, it is so, it's so awesome to see. this is how everything in the New Old Testament points back to Christ. And so, speaking of Christ, let's talk about him. And, you know, how exactly he fulfilled the prophecy. So, first off, he fulfilled the prophecy of the virgin birth, and also being born in Bethlehem. So now let's go to Luke, chapter 1. We start from verse uh, 26. Okay. So again, Luke chapter 1, starting from verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. In coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favorite one. The Lord is with you. Excuse me. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. They had said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have been found, found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your woman, bear a son and you will call him, you shall call him, you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. And he, sorry. All right. Sorry about that. Let's continue on here. Um, starting from verse 32, he'll be great. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she, she who also called barren, is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so, now let's go to Luke chapter 2, start from verse 1. So, this this now was kind of referred to as the Christmas narrative. Christmas narrative. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Cornelius was governor of Syria. And everyone was was on his way to register for for, for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the, of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave sorry, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and, and she wrapped. Him a cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping a watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, "Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which which will be for all the people." For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you: you shall find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Excuse me for a second. All right, sorry about that. Had a cough coming on, so I don't don't want to cough into the camera. So, anyways, we we are stopped in chapter twelve or verse twelve. So let's continue on right here. This will be a sign for you. You shall find a baby wrapped right in cloths to lie in the manger and suddenly there appeared with with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising god and saying glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased pleased when the angel when the angels had gone away from from them into heaven the shepherds began saying to one another let us go straight into to bethlehem then and see this that has been happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph, and maybe as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which was, had been told them about this child. And all who heard heard it wondered at the things which were told told them by by the shepherds. Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. And so, so these kind of are, are first off, in Luke chapter 1, that's how, kind of explaining how Jesus' word was to be conceived, and through virgin birth. And then in chapter 2, that's kind of the account of Jesus being born, and where he be where he's being born, it kind of, of course, with the shepherds, you know, the angel telling them about about the news of the Messiah coming and them and them sharing it with everyone in the street and, streets and, and you know glorify God and all that. So of course this um fulfills um a couple of prophecies. One first in chapter 1, of course um fulfilling the prophecy of the virgin birth. And also in Luke chapter 2 kind of explain, you know, where, when the angel said, you know, where they are they um Jesus was born in Bethlehem that of course fulfills the prophecy in Jeremiah where he said the Messiah will as where the Messiah will be born. It's so fascinating. So kind of the next part we're gonna go through is kind of how Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of of the Messiah in the first place and how in which was to come to save sinners. So first we go let's go to Matthew chapter one oops So Matthew chapter one verse twenty one she will bear a son you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. now let's jump to John chapter three. And start from verse 14. Here we go. So again, chapter three, John chapter three, starting from verse thirteen or fourteen. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten the son, so that whoever whoever believes in him shall not perish. Have eternal life for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged, he who who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this right here, excuse me for a second, this right here kind of really fulfills. The prophecy of what Jesus came to do and how it came about, where you know Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up and whoever believes in him will have eternal life, and whoever does not believe in him has been condemned already and will perish away. And so how he filled that out fulfilled that out was as it says in um Isaiah, he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was you know pierced for our transgressions and you know scorned and just everything, and that's exactly what happened. He was beaten, he was pierced and he was you know slashed with he, he was flogged, and ultimately he was pierced by the nails, of course, on his hands and feet, and nailed to a cross, or he was crucified. That was all done to him and so when when this happened, he was taken on. The, the God's wrath onto Himself. This is the very wrath that we ourselves deserve because of our sins. The death that He, um, that Jesus, um, took took is exactly this exact death that we deserved because of our sins. But He Himself took our place and took on the full wrath of God. This is where the idea of penal substitutionary atonement comes from. Where Jesus being killed on the cross fulfilled and satisfied God's wrath for his elect. And as it says, and it was complete, as Jesus himself says in John chapter 19. Again, John chapter 19, verse 30. Therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Not it is, you know, partly done, I did my half, you do the rest. No, it said he said it is finished. So the work is done for his elect. So those who come who already who do believe and will come to believe. He, they will be redeemed through Jesus Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection. The work is done. So, because of this, we do not have to walk perfectly aligned with the law. We we do need to obey God's law, of course, like His moral law and all that. But we don't have to be. We're not going to be perfect. We were never going to be perfect in the first place. But we don't have to worry about, oh my gosh, if I make a mistake, I'm done. No. And we don't have to worry about our good works, or not, because our good works, none of that does anything. So we don't have to worry because we are saved by grace. Because of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are saved by God's grace. Their faith in Jesus Christ. Alone. So let's go to Romans 11. And verse 6. So Romans 11 verse 6. Says this. But if it is by grace. It is no longer on the basis of words. Otherwise grace is no longer grace. So now let's go back to Ephesians 2. And we're going to be. Uh, starting on verse eight, which is where we left off. So again, Ephesians eight. Start Ephesians two, verse eight. verse eight. For by grace you have been saved. Sorry, let's Start over. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves; it is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So now let's go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not not by the works of the law since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified so again by the works of the law through you know good works and all of that we cannot be justified because or apart from Christ that work is filthy filthy rags it is nothing because we ourselves are not righteous we cannot be we cannot ourselves in our own works. And our own behavior become righteous. And righteous enough to, be, to enter the kingdom of God. And it's only through Jesus Christ. That we are. Made righteous in the sight of God. So that we may enter the kingdom of God. And be in his glory. For eternity. And of course you know we have still sin. And all that even in Christ. But because of, of the death. And resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are. His. His righteousness it impeded on us, as it says in second um, Corinthians chapter five verse 21. So, again, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, his righteousness was imputed on us. <clears throat> and so when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So, that's how it works. So now that we, of course, we were made completely righteous and in eternity, we will sin no, no more in eternity... But as right now, in our flesh, we still battle in our flesh. We still battle sin, but when God looks at us, He still see He sees the righteousness of, righteousness of Christ. It's it's so fascinating. It's so just wonderful. Just His mercy and grace. Everything, even when we don't deserve it, we do not deserve His mercy or grace. We deserve His wrath, <clears throat> but still, He's faithful to forgive. And because of his love for his people, for his elect, he gave his son to take to take our place on the cross in order to in order so that we can be redeemed again this is all done for him, for his glory and not for ours <clears throat> and again, all this was foreordained by God before the creation of the universe, all of it. Nothing took him by none of that took him by surprise, not the fallen man, none of that. None of that took him by surprise. He knew that he would have redeemed his elect through through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he knew even from the very even before creation, who exactly who he was gonna save and you know he predestined so in in so All those who have been saved, or who will be saved, was predestined and chosen by God before the foundation of the world. So let's go to uh, John chapter 6, verse 44. So John chapter 6, verse 44... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last, <clears throat> on the last day. So we, in our natural state, cannot go to God. We cannot desire. We don't desire God in a natural state. We simply don't. We hate God, but it's only through, is when the Father through the Holy Spirit changes our hearts and draws us to Him and redeems us. And the Father redeems us through Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> so so the process of being saved is basically the Holy Spirit draws us to the Father, and the Father redeems us through the Son, through Jesus Christ. So fascinating. So that's why that's where the whole you know the whole depravity of man comes from. That's why I really press in on that because people believe that we we can come to faith in christ on our own that we we can you know that we we still have good in us and are good enough to still desire god no we cannot desire we don't even choose god he chooses us he chooses who he was going to save as says let's go to romans chapter eight start from verse 28 So again, Romans chapter 8, starting from verse uh, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he will be the firstborn among, men, among many brethren. And those, <clears throat> excuse me, and these whom he predestined, he also called, In these whom he called, he also justified. In these whom he justified, he also glorified. So, next, let's go to um, Ephesians chapter 1. Let me start from verse 4. So, again, Ephesians chapter 1, starting from verse 4 just as he chose us in him, in him before the foundation of the world that we will be holy and blameless before him in him, in love he predestined us to adopt as sons through jesus christ to himself according to the kind nat- intention of his will to praise the, to praise to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely, freely bestowed on us in and, and the beloved in him we have have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches, riches the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all, in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his contention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens, and things on earth any things on the earth in him we also we have attained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose for the works for worse all things out of the counsel of his will. So two things one again this is all done like a repeat keep repeating this is all done for his glory, for his purpose to 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 build up his kingdom, to establish his kingdom. So it was not done for our glory. Yes, we are saved. Our sinners are saved. But it was not done for our glory, our purpose. If that makes sense. And so, again, it says in Romans and here Ephesians that we, his elect Christians, those who believe today and those who, who will come to believe, were predestined if before the foundation of the world. He, they were chosen before the foundation of the world. To be redeemed through Jesus Christ. This is where the doctrine of election comes from. And so, this is the gospel right here. This right here is the gospel. While we were dead in sin, God made a way through the deathbed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we may have our sins forgiven and spend an eternity in his glory. All done for his glory and purpose. That is the gospel right there. That right there is the gospel. And it's it's so wonderful and it's fascinating. And so, now that we... That was just the introduction. (laughs) I'm I'm just kidding. But anyways, now that we established... The concept of salvation... Why it was necessary in the first place. And so we need to ask the question so in this when we are saved, we when we are redeemed through jesus christ is it possible at all that even though we have nothing to do to, we have nothing to contribute to salvation besides our sin is it possible to lose salvation say if we sin so bad or whatever if we, or if we get into kind of a, a habitual sin is it possible that we can lose The salvation that God gifted us and that we become unborn again and we go back to our old ways and our new creation is destroyed and our old creation takes over again? Is that possible? Well, let's go to Scripture. So, Scripture, of course, always has the answers. So, let's first go to John chapter 3, verse uh, 16. The very famous verse in... John are right there. So again, John chapter three, verse sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So that as we established in the beginning of of this episode, the word eternal of course means forever. Everlasting. So, through Jesus Christ, we are given eternal life, everlasting life. That means forever. So, was Jesus lying when he said that? Was he making a mistake when he said that, saying that we have eternal life? Or is it that we do, in fact, once we are truly saved, we do, in fact, have eternal life, we are sealed? So now let's go to John 6. Back to John 6. We'll be going to verse 37 first. So again, um, John chapter 6, uh, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So now let's go to, it's still in chapter 6, go to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Again, there's that word again, eternal. Eternal means everlasting forever. And so, now let's go to John Chapter 10, John chapter 10, starting from verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is... No one is able to snatch them out of my out of the Father's hand. I and the I and the Father are one. And so, so what? Especially this passage right here, but it's saying that nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand, and we He will not cast us out once we are redeemed through Jesus Christ. So now let's go back to Romans. We're back to chapter 8, actually. And we started um, from where we left off in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, rather who was, rather who, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who was, who also intercedes for us, who will separate, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or or a sword, just as written. It's just as it is, as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to to be slaughtered. But in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that is probably... One of the best like defenses for the doctrine of of eternal security, yeah, I did. No matter what, I mean, Paul listens to many different things like height, death, powers. None of that can snatch us away from the love of God, from from His hand. None of it. He will not cast, cast us out. That is very important. And so let's go to First, Second Corinthians. I mean, Second Corinthians, chapter one. Verse 30, uh, 22. So verse... Tw- chapter 1, verse 22 in Second Corinthians. Who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Um, let's actually, let's go to verse 21 so we actually, that makes sense. Now he who established us, he who established us... With you in Christ, anointed us as, anointed us as God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a play, as as a pledge. Also sealed, never first to being sealed by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, for eternity and in Jesus Christ. So now let's go to Ephesians, chapter four, verse thirty. So again, Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And finally, let's go to First John. Over it. First John chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you, who to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Again, there's that word again, eternal. So in other words, answer that question, no, it's not possible for us to lose salvation. Once we are truly saved, we are sealed for an eternity by the Holy Spirit, for all eternity. So we cannot, no matter what we do, we cannot, (laughs) we cannot, give up our salvation so people make the case that well since we freely receive salvation we can just easily give it up like it's according to our will so that's kind of <clears throat> that's where I again I different, different kind of where I'm kind of on a different end when it comes to salvation in the first place according um. Apart from other people, um, you know, I don't believe we have a choice in salvation. I believe God chooses us, and He draws us to Him to be redeemed, to repentance and surrender. But unfortunately, today, many, some professing Christians, uh, many professing Christians, believe that we can we can do something, we can sin or whatever, we can do something to lose. Salvation, as if, as, as as if, if we had anything, as as if we had something to do with it in the first place. Again, we had nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with salvation. It wasn't even our choice. None of it was. The only thing we contributed to salvation was our sin. So the reason why I believe that so many people, many. Christians believe in this this kind of idea that we can lose salvation is for one, due to false teaching for many years especially in the Catholic Church they teach the false teaching that you can lose salvation but even the Protestant Church the many denominations who teach that you can lose salvation but this is not true whatsoever but another thing is also pride I think pride is the biggest thing, biggest factor to this. So in a pride, we, can believe, we believe that we can control our destinies, control, you know, where we go in our life, we, we control our steps, we determine our paths and all that. We decide whether we want to follow God or not. And we just hate the idea that we might not be controlled over something in our lives, including salvation. And this is big the biggest reason, I believe, that why people despise, despise and hate Reformed theology, because Reformed theology destroys pride. It completely destroys it. It destroys the pride of man and brings glory back to God. Um, I want to read a tweet real quick. So this is... Now, come on. Just give me a second. Peter's being done. There we go. Pull it up. There we go. So, this is a tweet from Josh Bice, who is a pastor over at Praise Mill Baptist Church in Douglasville, Georgia, and also is the head of uh, G3 Ministries. And he tweeted out this out the other day The doctrine of election crushes the pride of humanity and elevates the sovereignty of God and leads the church to praise God. And this is so true. The doctrine of election in Calvinism reformed theology completely destroys the pride, of human, the pride of man, the pride of humanity. And it gives and it elevates God to his rightful place. Because in reformed theology we you know is taught that He is sovereign over all... Over everything. And that is supported by scripture. He is sovereign over everything. Including... Salvation. And that's why people hate it because in our pride... We want to control... Our destinies. But ultimately God controls our destinies. God is the one who predestined... Either... Predestined us to be saved... Or to let... um. Some who who would not be saved to die in their sins it's all to him it's all under his all under his role and his sovereignty. I mean again, if losing salvation was possible at all, I am pretty much every Christian on earth who is who li- who lives now who will live who has ever lived who would have lost would have lost it, would have lost salvation, and never made it to heaven, as John MacArthur once famously said, If you could lose your salvation, you would this is true if we can lose the salvation, we totally would, we would totally lose it, and so anyone who teaches that you can lose salvation his salvation um they are in error. And should be corrected in love, correct them. Correct them. Don't be don't be like mean about it. Don't be harsh or anything. But do it in love. <laughs> Speak the truth, but in love, as always. And no, I want I want to make the statement right here. No, eternal security. This doctrine does not give license to sin and let us live however we want and all that. That's not. That's a very. Stupid straw man argument that people make against the doctrine of eternal security. Because those who are truly saved are a new creation. God gave you a new heart. So that you may desire God to love God and to obey Him. Because again, apart from Christ, apart from apart from Christ, you know, we don't do that. We don't love God. We don't obey him. It is only when God changes our hearts. And draws us and redeems, redeems us. Then we desire God. And then we desire to obey him. And love him. And so that the argument is very silly. Because those who are truly saved. Won't continue to live in sin. They will continue to they will try to obey God. I mean of course. We're not going to be perfect. We will sin. Because we are battling our flesh, our flesh every day. But we won't deliver in sin, so that argument makes no sense again this is excellent excellent news That once you have we have truly repented is rendered to Christ, eternal punishment turns into eternal security that is excellent, excellent news it should actually bring us great comfort as it brings us comfort that we you know. We didn't have anything to do with salvation in the first place. And we could do nothing to lose it. That is very comforting. That's, that brings assurance. To folks. And so. Again. If you believe that. You can lose your salvation. I encourage you. To really study. This issue. Go, go to the scriptures. Go to the bible. Read it for yourself. Study it for yourselves. And I. And I pray that you, that God will show you And open your eyes to the truth And to the truth that you are sealed If you are truly in Christ You are sealed For an eternity And again, this is all done for His glory All of it was done for His purpose and glory So even when we make it to eternity In heaven We will be united And be in the presence of His glory And all like all these stupid things we talk about politics and everything that wouldn't matter because we will be in his presence all that would matter is him and our praise and worship of him and even when the new heavens and new earth come about when all sin all evils are wiped out all glory would go to him we would spend eternity worshiping and praising him not praising ourselves, all that pride will be gone. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in that which Christians should continue to preach to the world, and so that God can use this preaching to build up His kingdom and continue to draw in His elect for His glory alone. And so, that concludes our topic on. On eternal security, and I hope this edifies, edifies you, encourages you, teaches you. I hope it even God uses it to draw His draw in His elect. Again, again this show, this show, this whole show is done for His glory and for His purpose, as all things should. Says in first Corinthians, whether you eat and drink, do it all for the glory of God. That's exactly how, as Christians we shall live our lives. Alrighty. So now let's continue on in our uh kind of walk through through the book of Acts. So last week we left off in um chapter or still in chapter thirteen, we left off of verse eleven when Paul and um Barnabas and his you know, all of them are beginning to start their the missionary journey. And everything throughout throughout the world, as Paul brings the uh, gospel to the Gentiles and everything. And so, again, we left off with uh, verse 11 last time. So we're be starting with verse 12. And we're going to be going to probably verse 43. So then again, uh, starting from verse 12. Then the pro, soul. Proconsul, Poconsul, whatever. <laughs> believed. When he saw what ha- had happened, and being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions put out, uh, put out to sea from pa- Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John let them return to Jerusalem. But going on per- from Perga, there they arrived in Pencindian uh, Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down after the reading of the law and the prophets. the synagogue officials sent them, sent to them, saying, "Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the um, people, say it." Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, "Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers." It made the people great and during the stay in the land of Egypt with an ob- obligated arm. He led them out, of, out, of, out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put, a, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed the, their land as inheritance, all which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, and um, and a man, a man from the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be the king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, he would do my will. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise God brought to Israel, a savior, Jesus. After John proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But Behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, says in Abraham so the Abraham's family, those who among, among who feared God, to was the message, the message of the salvation had been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem, and the rulers recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked, Pilate that he, <clears throat> they asked Pilate that he be executed. And th- when they had carried out all, re- all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee into Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses, his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As it is written, also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in, in this way, I will give you the, whole, give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is free from all things from which he had not been could not be free through the law of Moses. Therefore he took heed Take heed, so that therefore take heed, so that the thing spoken in the prophets may not not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, you marvel and perish and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should ascribe it to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them in the next Sabbath. Now, when, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the, of, the, of the God-fearing, uh, God-fearing prophecies followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking, speaking to them, urging them to continue to, to continue in the grace of God. All right, so that's pretty cool. This is a really cool passage right here to where you got Paul and Barnabas you know, who arrive in Antioch. And, you know, on a Sabbath, they just go to synagogue like every normal Jew on, on the Sabbath. And then, you know, once the guy who's speaking, you know, reads the prophets and the priests, you know, reads the prophets and the law and everything. You know, he invites people to speak. And here goes Paul. Again, this is in a synagogue. Whereby many, many of them denied Jesus, and then he began to proclaim the gospel. And this is this is fascinating because just there's a very uh, could be a very dangerous environment because many Jews do still today deny Jesus and outright hate him. So, but we like 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 with Paul, he was still bold. And proclaiming the gospel to his Jewish brothers, and may we have that bold, same boldness in ourselves when we teach, when we share the uh, the gospel with others, with others as well. All so that is in that part. So now let's go on to the gifts of the week. So as for the guest of the week, um, it's kind of going to be kind of short. So, The Book of Boba Fett is um, kind of uh, airing right now. So, The Book of Boba Fett it follows, obviously, Boba Fett and his adventures kind of. It starts from where he first um, got out of the, um, of the pit, which he fell in in episode six. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry about that. And, you know, how he came out surviving that. And all the troubles he went through and everything. But one thing I want to comment on real quick. And that's something very cool that happened. In this past episode. With the number of cameos. That happened. First off we see uh, Mando. From the Mandalorian. The, the, main, the main guy. His name is Den I believe. And we also see uh, Baby Yoda. Or aka Grogu. Being trained by Luke. We do see Luke. In this episode as well as R2. We also see Ahsoka, and apparently we see Ahsoka and Luke interacting with each other. It kind of is it very is a imply imply that you know they already know each other. They met you know kind of a while back and everything. So very very be very fascinating to see maybe in the Ahsoka series you know how they met you know how the conversation you know went about. I'll just watch an episode just them. Of <laughs> just them talking about Anakin and all that because that that conversation was pretty pretty cool even though it was very short. And among that, you know, we see another Clone Wars character. His name was uh his name is Cad Bane, who's kind of a pirate and bounty hunter. So it's very cool to see him in live action as well. So again, this is this is a pretty good series so far. I'm I'm pretty impressed with it, and it's done by Dave Filoni. So of course it's good. I can't wait to see, you know, how Obi-Wan does and how The Sokka Sears does. It's going to be very fascinating. righty, so I think that's all half for this episode. So I'll be back here, um, not next week, but the following week with all the latest. My name is Sean Clinton, and this is The God of Frame Show. Like if you enjoyed this episode the water, of The God of Frame Show, don't forget to like, up. share, and subscribe. Rem- remember, like you can find the, the show on our podcast, starter, Spotify, or, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Thank you for listening and watching. And as always, all glory to be to God.